Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 1st, 2011. Doing something kind of, sort of different, but not really. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said about God out there, and as a result of it, well, we have to do some cleanup work. And uh, we... Well, let me put it this way. We don't normally engage in real-time theological battles. I find those to be rather um, difficult to fight. The speed of the Internet is just a smidge too fast to you know, to really uh, deal with things. As a result of it, I always find that slowing things down just a bit and reflecting and thinking about what's going on are, are the order of the day many times. Now, that being said, um, if you're following the Rob Bell Universalist Love Wins book thing that uh, is going on right now, then you know that uh, the Twitterverse, the Internet, the blogosphere has all gone kaboosh, and uh, and it's all things Rob Bell, uh, and uh, and... It's rather interesting to watch, and as I was um, reflecting on it this morning, you know, I, I did a little bit of uh, writing on this. I'm, I'm working on something that I hope to, to publish to uh, at least put into the conversation that's going on out there. And uh, it, let me read to you the opening of this, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do on the program today. Um, here's what I said. Love Wins, uh, Rob Bell's latest book, has not even hit the bookstores, and already there is a lot of heated debate and controversy on the on the Internet and Twitterverse. In, in one camp are people who are familiar with Bell's theology via his lectures, his interviews, sermons, and his other uh, books that have already been published for many years. Uh, through their study of Bell's previous statements, they believe that they already have a fairly accurate picture of the ultimate theological conclusions that Bell will draw in his book. Now, in the other camp are people who are taking a wait-and-see approach uh, with Bell. These are people who, understandably, don't want to jump to conclusions before the book is published. Now, if you're familiar with church history... 
then you already know that debates and discussion regarding the after afterlife have flared up at various times over the past 2,000 years. But this time, the controversy feels less organic and more contrived. Now, as someone who has spent quite a bit of time in the world of corporate marketing, I, I'm very familiar with the old adage that all press is good press. At its core, the basic idea behind this adage is simple. Controversy, or so-called bad press, actually sells products. From the publisher's marketing blurb that claims that Bell is going to put hell on trial to the first promo video with its deconstructing questions and ominous-sounding background music, it's clear that HarperCollins intends to sell lots and lots and lots of Rob Bell's new book by creating a firestorm of controversy in the weeks leading up to its release. This provocative approach to marketing the book was carefully crafted to create controversy that would then propel the book to the top of the bestseller list even before the book is released. And when all of this blows over... Uh, HarperCollins will be laughing all the way to the bank while the rest of us will be at each other's throats reeling in the wake of this manufactured marketing controversy. As a result of this perspective, I have a different set of questions that I want to ask in the days leading up to the release of Rob Bell's book. One, is the universalism hell issue really still an open question that can't be answered until we all read Rob Bell's new book? Two, are we really supposed to believe that Rob Bell has discovered some new insight regarding this topic that no one in all of human history has ever seen before? The more I think about this manufactured controversy and the posture that Bell and his publisher have taken, the less convinced I have become that this book will actually contribute any, anything meaningful, correct, or truthful regarding what is really going to happen to actual human beings in the real afterlife. Now, I'll explain all of this in a future edition of Fighting for the Faith, but that's where I'm at so far. You know, kind of looking at, you know, stepping back and just breathing a second. You know, what's going on with this thing? You come to realize, you know, this Bell controversy, it feels uh, manufactured. It And uh, I think all of this is designed to sell books. As a result of it, I, I want to take a different approach. I don't know with certainty what Bell is going to say in his book. I, I haven't seen it. Um but I do know this, is that I'm very conversant in Rob Bell's theology. And I know for a fact that his co-pastor, Shane Hips, I've already got him on record in previous installments of Fighting for the Faith, basically teaching universalism. And Shane Hips teaches that, um, that religions are like sailboats. It doesn't really matter which boat you're on. The most important thing is catching the winds of the Spirit. And that's Shane Hips. And I find it hard to believe that Shane Hips' theology is all that different than Rob Bell's. But being the fact that they are individuals and, I, and they're both seem to be caught up in post-modernity, you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to be um, overly anxious and ambitious to lump them both into the exact same theology. I think there's probably nuanced differences between the two of them. But that being said, um, I've come to be in the possession of um, a sermon delivered by Rob Bell a few years back entitled Love 
wins. And what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, this is not a light edition of Fighting for the Faith, um, uh, but it's not going to be a very long edition. I, I want to I want to singularly focus in on this sermon delivered by Rob Bell with this assumption that what Rob Bell teaches in this sermon entitled Love Wins um, uh, it's probably not going to be too far different than part of his line of reasoning that he's going to deliver in the book entitled Love Wins. I don't see Rob Bell really, really changing his theology much. He might be fine-tuning it nowadays, or now that he's written a book, there might be some different nuanced ways in which he argues. But I want you to listen to Rob Bell deliver this sermon entitled Love Wins so that you can hear where he's coming from. Because in the sermon itself, Rob Bell says some things that are, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, they're disturbing. So, Here's what we're going to do. You know, I, I review sermons frequently on Fighting for the Faith. In fact, on a daily basis, unless I'm doing a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. So today what we're going to do is we're going to do the sermon review as the entire program. And the reason why is because I want to get this information into the conversation so that people can know what Rob has said in the past regarding this concept of love wins. Now, this particular uh, sermon is focusing in on the cross. It's not focusing in on the afterlife. It's focusing in on the cross, but it's not very difficult to see where he would take this argument if he were to apply it to the afterlife, and I'll point that out to you. Now, in fact, let's do this. Let Let me go ahead and do what we normally do here. When we do sermon reviews, we do our music. The good, the bad, and the ugly, we review them all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Mars Hill Bible Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Pastor Rob Bell presiding. The name of the sermon, Love Wins, The Cross. Now when you're listening to any sermon delivered by any pastor, good, bad, or ugly, you want to listen to how they handle God's Word. You want to listen to the inferences that they're making from the text. Are they valid inferences? Are they selectively using portions of uh, Jesus' teaching and excluding other portions? This is important stuff. Is what they're saying actually there, or are they eisegeting or just making stuff up? All of this is important. Now, as you're going to listen to the sermon, you're going to hear a lot of true things about Jesus' crucifixion, about the Gospels and other things. And then about halfway through the sermon, you're going to hear some stuff that, uh, well, it doesn't sound like it fits at all. And why? Because I've come to the conclusion after listening to the sermon a few times that Rob Bell has come up with his own theory of the atonement and what it means for the universe. And... If he's been consistent from the time he preached this sermon until now when he's publishing this book, I think it's safe to say that what he's going what he's going to argue for, at least against hell, is going to base, be based in part in his theory of the atonement and what Jesus was doing on the cross. So with that, let me kill the music and uh, let's dive into the uh, sermon review. Here is Rob Bell 
Love wins. I'd like to start a new series of teachings this morning. And as you know, once in a great while, I get excited about this. Um, and how many of you have ever seen a cross? How many, uh, okay, thank you. One person I have. Um, how many of you have seen it on a piece of jewelry? Yeah, and how many of you have ever had been in a particular circumstance and seen somebody wearing a piece of cross jewelry and said to yourself, I wonder if they know what it means? Yes, yes, not excluding Madonna videos. And, and so there was this interesting moment when I, I, I wonder, how many of you ever thought, I wonder why they're wearing a cross? Yeah, which raises all sorts of questions. Do I know what it means? And are there other things that it means that I may have missed? And um, so I set out a while ago to begin exploring what else does it mean? Not like it doesn't mean what we think it means, but what, but what, does, it, what, are the, what does the cross mean tomorrow? when you go to school, when you go to work, when you drive in your car, when um, you deal with the people that you deal with. What does it mean tomorrow or later today when you meet up with somebody who you've had some um, rugged exchanges with and there's a little bit of weird blood between you? What does the cross mean for how we actually live tomorrow? Because for many people who would say, I believe in the cross, I assume the answer would be because Jesus died on the cross for my sins and someday I'm going to heaven, which we praise God for. My question would be, what does it mean tomorrow? And what does it mean two hours from now at lunch? And so over the next month or so, um, I'd like to explore what else is going on with the cross. And at a deeper level, what else or what is God saying to us through the cross. So let's start in the book of Matthew, um, chapter 21. Now, there are four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all move quite rapidly. They're all telling these stories of Jesus' life, and they move quite quickly until they get to the last hours of his life. So if you were to read them just, if it was like a movie, it would be a movie in which the scenes move really quickly from his birth through his life, but then when you get to the last hours of his life, they get really slow and they move and give you lots of detail. It's almost like the Gospels are introductions to the passages about his death. When it gets to Jesus' death, we get way more detail and we're told much in a much slower fashion about what's happening. Matthew 21, verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts... And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? These kinds of questions always put me in a good mood, don't they? You, when somebody questions your motives, or somebody asks, what right do you have to do this? Or essentially, in our language, it would be, who are you? But this, this always puts, puts me in a wonderful mood. Now, turn ahead a couple chapters. Let's go to... Chapter 26. As we get down to these final scenes, one of the central things that keeps coming up is who gave you this authority? Who are you? And who are you to do this? And how dare you say these things? They're going after his motivations. They're going after his credentials. They're going after what gives him the right to say and do this stuff. Notice 26 verse 14. Then one of the twelve, these are his most intimate followers, his disciples, the one called Judas Iscariot, 
went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So one of his most intimate friends, one of his disciples who along many timelines has spent three years camping out with him, eating with him, traveling with him, learning from him, discussing with him. He's poured his life into Judas and Judas is behind his back negotiating for how to sell out Jesus. And they agree upon 30 uh, silver coins. So apparently the price that his friend has put on him is 30 silver coins. So, so I'm glad that nowadays nobody ever betrays a friend or anything. Because Jesus' world was so, so different than ours. Turn ahead to the next section, verse 36. He predicts one of his disciples um, is going to deny him. Then verse 36. Then Jesus, Matthew 26 went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them, what's your text say? Sleeping, which is always a confidence booster. By the way, they just had a Passover meal, which involved four cups of wine. So it would be normal after the Passover meal that you'd go um, to sleep. Could your men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time, verse 43. Then he came back and he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So his best friends aren't able to stay awake. They're not there for him in his time of need. So he left them and when he went once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? So people are questioning his authority and they're questioning his motives. His best, one of his best friends is negotiating to sell him out behind his back. And then in his time of like greatest need, he's like, ah, my body is weak. Ah, his closest allies can't stay awake. Notice then he's turned over to the Sanhedrin, a religious group, and they ask him questions. Notice verse 67 of uh, chapter 26. He's worthy of death, they answered. Then, verse 67, they spit on his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? So he has his friends falling asleep on him. Other friends are betraying him behind his back. The religious establishment is questioning his motives and his authority. And then in verse 67, they spit in his face. And they struck him with their fists, and they slapped him, and they said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Then the next whole section, verse 69 to verse 75, is a friend of his named Peter. He's sitting in the courtyard, and a young servant girl comes to him. You also were with Jesus, verse 70, but Peter denied it before them all. I don't know what you are talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus. And he denied it again with an oath. 
I swear to you, I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know the man. So, one of your best friends denies that he even knows who you are. Now, skip to the next chapter, chapter 27, verse 27. So, he's questioned. um, He's betrayed behind his back. His friends keep falling asleep. They aren't there for him. And then one of his friends denies that he even knows him. Verse 27 of chapter 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. Second time a reference to being spit on. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. So now he's beaten in the head with a club. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. They make him carry his cross for a little while. Then verse 41, in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And then he ends up crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? So this is the story we're given. Every imaginable thing that could happen to somebody. Thank God the world's like that, not like that now, huh? Notice this, if we were just to make a list of all these things. He's questioned, he's betrayed, deserted, denied, spit on, struck in the face with fists, slapped, next mocked, stripped naked, insulted, beaten, lied about, also accused, convicted, condemned, crucified, humiliated, scorned, pierced, bruised, rejected, hated, stared at, left naked in public, to die and killed. Now, so far, nothing wrong with this sermon. It's a summary of the gospel lessons, what's recorded by the eyewitnesses regarding the crucifixion and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. No problems so far. We continue. So this is, this is the story of all of the things that happened to him. So what is his response to all of the things that happened to him? Next slide. Let's go to the book of... uh, Next slide, and then I'll tell you where we're going to go. Luke 23. Now, pay close attention, because if if his theology is consistent from the time he preached this sermon until the time he wrote the book, Love Wins, he's going to 
overemphasize Christ's reaction in order to de-emphasize the other texts that teach something different regarding the end of time in hell. Listen carefully. I could have guessed, but you know. Luke 23. What is his response to all of the things that happen to him and that are done to him? Notice uh, Luke 23. Two other men are, are executed with him. And uh, they put one on his right, one on his left. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So whether he's referring to the thieves or he's referring to the people who are killing him, his attitude is, God, please forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. So his response is forgiveness. Then the people continue to mock him. Then, um, verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. The one guy is dying on his one side, says to him, like, if you're the guy, get us out of here. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, dude, you're guilty. You're going to fry. No. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. So the few lines of dialogue that the writers do give Jesus... His heart is bent on forgiveness and invitation. So all of these things that are done to him, and he's mocked and spit on and struck in the face, every line that he's given is a line of almost like a soft-hearted forgiving and inviting. Hey, today you'll be with me. Today you'll be with me. And then turn over to the book of uh, John, the end of John 21. Okay, I want to point something out. Jesus did say to one of the two thieves that he was crucified between, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say the same to the one who mocked him. It's important. We continue. Please, let's go to 19. There's one other, a couple other pictures we get of how Jesus responds to what's done to him. Um, John 19, verse, um, there's a little section in verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that would be John, um, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So he's on the cross. He's probably mostly naked. He's been whipped and beaten in the head and spit on. And the crowds are yelling at him. 
And according to this passage, his thought is, somebody, he's the oldest son, and his thought is, who's going to care for my mother when I'm gone? And so he says to one of his disciples, take my mom and take care of her. So when we're given these pictures of how he responds to what's being done to him, it's forgiveness, it's invitation, and it's caring. I've got to make sure my mom is okay. And then notice tw- chapter 21. Okay, now I'm going to pause for a second. This is exactly why we need the apostolic epistles, okay? What Rob Bell is doing right now is he's drawing inferences from a narrative text, okay? He's drawing theological inferences from a narrative text. You've got to be careful when you do that because here's the deal. The narrative gospels do not give us the clearest theological understanding of what is going on in Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. So all of these things that Bell is pointing to right now, in the narrative text, they're absolutely correct. The question is, is that as Christians, how are we to understand Jesus' death and suffering and the forgiveness that he was extending even to those who were murdering him, okay? The answer to that question is, is that we have to then look to the writings of the apostles, okay? You would look to the writings of Peter or John or the apostle Paul because they give us the theological explanation for the historical narrative text regarding Jesus' crucifixion. Why was he being crucified? What was going on regarding the forgiveness of sins? Who does that forgiveness extend to? That is all fleshed out in the epistles. The epistles give us the Christian theology of the historical narratives and the biographical texts in the Gospels. But watch what Bell's doing here, because he's recounting something about Jesus's sufferings, and he's pointing to correct things that Jesus did. I mean, that's the right there in the text, but then he's going to make a theological leap. He's going to jump to a theological interpretation that is not in accord with the theology that the apostles taught regarding this, these historical events. So listen carefully. Um, his disciples desert him and end up back in the Galilee, back at their businesses. They go back to work uh, fishing, and fishing isn't going well. And Jesus appears and tells them, we'll just go on the other side of the boat. And so they go on the other side of the boat, and then they have all sorts of fish. So uh, Jesus is brought face-to-face with his, one of his best friends, his disciple, who um, had betrayed him. And um, verse 10 of John 21, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. And so Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples asked him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. By the way, he cooked, maybe. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So he spends probably a couple years telling them, listen, I'm going to suffer and die, 
and then I'm going to be risen, I'm going to rise from the dead. When it actually happens, instead of staying true to what he had said, they just desert and they go back to work and they deny him and they completely freak out. I assume like I would do. Then he appears with them later and you think, you, you picture him just like, okay guys, like coming down the beach, now it's time to roll up the sleeves and even the score because you weren't there. No. Hey, you guys want some breakfast? So to the people who have denied him and the people who have deserted him, do you want some breakfast? And he feeds them. And then uh, verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. Third time he says to them, Simon, do you love me? This is verse 17. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. And so essentially Jesus reinstates him. i got work for you to do. i got work for you to do. I know that you denied me. I know that everything fell apart. I know that you're a chicken. But listen, I'm going to take you. and I still have work for you to do because I haven't given up hope on you. So Jesus' response to everything that's happened to him is... Love, forgiveness, invitation, caring for others. And then with Peter, it's, it's like, I know you did all that stuff to me. I've forgiven you, but i got work for you to do. i got work for you to do. Feed my sheep. Take care of the people. Next slide. Jesus had choices. Because he was wronged and he was betrayed and he was cheated on and he was deserted and he was gossiped about and he was mocked. And all sorts of things happened to him that we don't know anything about. Nothing that we can relate to. And Jesus had choices about how he would respond. He had choices about whether or not he would respond with evil. He would spit back. He would throw a fist back. He would pick up a club and fight. Or he would respond with something else. And in every passage that we're given, he responds with love. He responds with love. He never once becomes the evil that is done to him. You never hear him say, just give me time and I have lots of it because I made it. And I will get even. You never have him, when he's mocked, come back with some sort of mocking line in response. You never ever see him responding with what's being done to him with the same kinds of things, essentially stooping to their level. He responds with love every single time. Are we all- Now, what he said is correct. Where he goes wrong, and I think this is where he's going to go in his book, is he's going to pro- argue that Jesus never responded in kind to the evil that was done with him. Therefore, ergo, for God to send anybody to hell would be uh, for him to respond in kind, for him to respond in a way that is evil. So he's using, he basically is setting all of this up and coming up with his own conclusions regarding Jesus' actions and then applying them, in fact, misapplying them then, to what we should expect in the future. Now, what I'm going to do right here is I'm going to pause, and uh, we're going to pay some bills. And uh, when I come back from the break, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to continue 
with this sermon uh, preached by Rob Bell a few years ago entitled Love Wins. And I and uh, this is a sermon that I, I think sets up and frames the theology that we're going to see in Rob Bell's book. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! Supposed to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer. Shut up! Don't sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry. Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? 
Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hang himself. Hang himself. Hang himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide. What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death. What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture. Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention, and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like His. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, the New Testament actually gives us a theology of the cross and the atonement that we best pay attention to because it was taught by the guys who learned it from Jesus. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. By joining our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, what we're going to do here is we're going to continue listening to the sermon entitled Love Wins by Rob Bell. 
We're about 19 minutes into the sermon, and what I want to do here is I'm going to back it up just a smidge so that you can hear uh, hear the context of the statements that he's making at this point in the sermon because uh, I had to pause in order to pay some bills. I don't normally do that during sermon reviews because I do you know I do my sermon reviews in hour number two, not hour number one. But anyway, so I'm going to back up the audio about 25 seconds, and I want you to pay again close attention to what he's doing. He's retelling and po- uh, kind of pointing out uh, the highlights of the narrative portions of Jesus's reactions to the people who are murdering him and crucifying him and scourging him and beating him and spitting on him and punching him in the face and pointing out that Jesus is kind and Jesus is merciful. And everything he's pointing out is correct. But where he, if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss the subtle shift. He's going to draw theological inferences from this that are not taught in the other portions of the New Testament text. I am convinced, again, after listening to this sermon several times, that Rob Bell is creating his own theory of the atonement and what it means for the universe. Now, let's, uh, let's continue. Here's Rob Bell. Just give me time, and I have lots of it, because I made it. And I will get even. You never have him, when he's mocked, come back with some sort of mocking line in response. You never, ever see him responding with what's being done to him with the same kinds of things, essentially stooping to their level. He responds with love every single time. Are we all seeing that here? He's given choices, and his response is always Love. That's always love. And then, a couple days later, he rises from the dead, which no one's done before. He wins. He he wins. He does what no one's never done before. He never, like one writer said, he's tempted in all the same ways as us. He just doesn't give in. Which has fascinating consequences for us. Number one, next slide. Here's one point. He says this. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I win. Okay, now, those of you who are familiar with the different, uh, I don't want to call them theories of the atonement because that's, that's the wrong terminology. Um, when we think about what Christ was doing on the cross, it is best to think about the fact that the Bible creates and gives us several different word pictures. Okay, um, because there's a lot more going on in the cross on the cross than really even we know what's going on there. But we don't know, really understand what's going on at all if the Bible doesn't reveal it. If God didn't tell us what was going on, and so the Bible uses several different motifs, if you would. You can think of the atonement as a diamond. When you look at a diamond, there's different facets. There's different size, size, you know, sites that you can look at on the diamond to kind of to take in its brilliance and its beauty and all of that kind of stuff. That's what's going on in the atonement. So uh, when the Bible presents different aspects of what Jesus was doing on the cross, you think of them as different facets of a diamond. And so you can look at, the, you can look at what Christ was doing on the cross from several different points of view. The language that uh, Rob Bell is using, uh, he wins, sounds like he's taking a spin off of 
the Christus Victor motif of the atonement. Okay, But it's really not the same, though. If you're familiar with what the Christus Victor motif is, um, it's as if Rob Bell is aware of it, and he's kind of playing with this motif and putting his own spin on it. So listen carefully. I win. No one's ever lived the perfect life, and no one has ever been able to restrain and hold back from doing at least one act of evil. But I am loving the whole way through. I've overcome the world. I've done it. No one's done it. I did it. I did it. I did it. Rose from the dead. Did it. Did it. There's a little swagger there. Would you agree? I've overcome the world. I did it. No one's done that. Show me someone who's done that. One writer even said later, like, where are the poets and the philosophers? I mean, I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. Who's done that? Never seen that at a party, have you? There's like a swagger. There's like a, I've overcome the world. Which tells me a couple things. Next slide. There's a new way that the universe works. Okay, there it was. Got to back this up just a tad. You need to hear this again. Okay? This is where he totally jumps the tracks. Listen again. Who's done that? One writer even said later, like, where are the poets and the philosophers? I mean, I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. Who's done that? Never seen that at a party, have you? There's like a swagger. There's like a, I've overcome the world. Which tells me a couple things. Next slide. There's a new way that the universe works. Okay. According to Bell, the, this narrative, you know, these narrative texts regarding Jesus' suffering and his reaction to those who are murdering him, according to Bell, says that there's a, quote, new way that the universe works. You are going to search long, and you are going to search hard, and you are going to search fruitlessly for language in the New Testament that says that now there is a new way that the universe works. There is no text in the scriptures that says any such thing. This is a foreign interpretation, and it's a non-biblical interpretation regarding what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. Now, this requires us to actually spend a little bit of time in the biblical texts looking at what was accomplished. What does the Bible say? What do the apostles say was accomplished by Jesus? What does his death on the cross all mean? Let's do a little bit of a New Testament survey. You're going to need a Bible, and you're going, we're going to be flipping around. Now, you're going to notice something here. As I'm reading these different passages, I'm not taking time, for the most part, to give us all of the context of the passages that I'm citing. It is your job, therefore, to test what I'm saying against the clear teachings of the Word of God by going back and looking at everything that I'm quoting to you by putting it back in its immediate and fuller context to ensure that I'm not taking these out of context and by doing so drawing inferences from these texts that were never meant to be inferred because I'm not giving you the full context. Okay? But that being the case, let's open up our Bibles and let's take a look at what Scripture says 
about what Jesus was doing on the cross. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, I read, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What, what is that? The righteousness of God. The dikaiosune tutheu. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. Okay, this is important. This this text here in Romans says that talks about the righteousness that is by faith. Doesn't say for the whole world. It says for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay? So, when we talk about what Jesus was doing on the cross, we have got to deal with this concept of propitiation. Propitiation in a sense, this hilasterion idea is, this, is that it's ricocheting off the wrath of God, or it's fully satisfying, or fully sucking up and, and drinking in the wrath of God. When we talk about what Jesus was doing on the cross, we cannot, cannot, cannot do so apart from discussing the wrath of God. Because the question comes up, when we talk about salvation, what is it that we are being saved from? Are we being saved from a bad hair day? Are we being saved from credit card debt? Are we being saved from poverty? Are we being saved from socialism? Are we being saved from capitalism? Are we being saved from Marxism? Are we being sa- saved from Keynesian economic theory? What are we being saved from? Well, uh, the Gospel of John actually answers this question rather nicely. Okay, John chapter 3, I'll start at verse 31 and read. He who comes from above, that is Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Who ever receives his testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. But the wrath of God remains on him. So when we talk about what Jesus is doing on the cross, it has to do with propitiating the wrath of God. And I didn't hear anything really from Rob Bell talking about Jesus' blood and his sufferings and death propitiating the wrath of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, talking about Jesus. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 states, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Now, this is where I'm going to disagree with my Calvinist brothers. I think the clear teachings of the Scripture make it clear that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. But those, that propitiation, that sacrifice by Christ, is applied individually to people through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. As John said, whoever believes in him has life. Whoever does not believe, the wrath of God remains on that person. Okay? 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love for one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this love of God, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if we so love if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, Bell made it clear he was trying to figure out, based upon what Jesus was doing on the cross and the sufferings that he endured, how the cross should play out in our everyday life. That was the premise and the basic thesis of the sermon that we're listening to. Okay, Funny, what I just read from 1 John chapter 4 addresses it. Let me read it again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, uh, who, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest to us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, interesting. I mean, if, if really he wanted to talk about how the cross plays out in our lives, this should have been the text to go to. Because in this text, it makes it clear that our love towards our neighbors, towards our fellow human beings, really should play out in light of the cross. Because God loved us so much that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That forgiveness that was given to us by the shed blood of Christ that propitiated the wrath of God is exactly the same forgiveness that we then extend to others, especially when we pray the Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Those would have been perfectly fine texts for Rob Bell to go to, but he didn't. Instead, he's kind of making up his own 
idea, his own theory, if you would, of the atonement, and has come to the conclusion that now the universe works differently. But none of the apostles argue for the universe working differently. And I think the reason why he's going this direction is because ultimately Rob Bell believes that the idea of eternal punishment is contrary to love. And if God, if Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead and sends people to hell, he would then argue, based upon his new theory of the atonement that he's beginning to unfold and unpack here, that this would be Jesus responding in the same way to people that he was treated when he was on the cross. But it's not a valid argument at all. We'll continue looking at some of the passages here. Let's move on to the next one. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Pay close attention to the Apostle Peter and what he says about what Jesus was doing on the cross. Quote, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, keep in mind, here Peter talks about how we were ransomed and how Jesus' blood you know, you know, propitiates the wrath of God, that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, okay? But Peter was no universalist. And Peter isn't arguing here that because of Jesus' death and resurrection that the universe now works off of a different system, okay? Instead, Peter, in his second epistle, Starting at chapter 2, let me read. This is a long section. I'm going to read the whole chapter and a little bit into chapter 3. Listen and see if you can see if uh, the Apostle Peter thinks that what Jesus did on the cross, that he so eloquently talks about in his first letter, is inconsistent then when it comes to God, Christ returning in judgment. Here we go. Second Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, 
If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. Well, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. They're bold and willful, and they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Or as angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They're accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with him with, uh, with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. From them, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping, those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, well, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, 
but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, the reason why people perish and are punished eternally has nothing to do with something lacking in God's love or that his love isn't perfect. According to the scriptures, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. But men loved darkness instead of light. They loved their evil rather than the truth. And so they persist in their evil and their bad deeds and in their false doctrine and in their false religion, rather than repent and be forgiven and trust and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This is exactly what happened in the book of Acts. Okay, There's a fantastic passage in the book of Acts that I want to read to you. And here's what it says. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 26. The Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon in a synagogue. Here's what Paul says. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are and we are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God promised the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that that through this man, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, and by him, everyone who believes. It doesn't say everyone. It says by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, and they were reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Now I'm going to point something out. Did Paul and Barnabas, as they're being reviled by these people who did not believe in Jesus, 
who rejected the good news of the forgiveness of sins through the crucified and risen saviors? Did he say, oh, well, that's okay, love wins? No, they didn't say that. Here's what they said. And when Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. For so the the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. No mention here of, oh, that's okay, love wins. There's a new way in which the universe now operates. No. He says to them who rejected the message, since you deem yourselves unworthy of eternal life and thrust aside the word of God that was spoken to you, we're going to go and preach this gospel message to the Gentiles. The fact that people go to hell is not a character flaw regarding God, his justice, or his love. It has to do with the fact that all human beings are by nature sinners who have rebelled against God, and that this goes all the way back to the sin of Adam, which corrupted human nature and turned us in on ourselves rather than pointing us to God. The Bible is addressed to rebel sinners like you and like me. So I point all of this out in the text that I've read to you to basically say, this is interesting. Rob Bell has seen something in uh, Jesus' death and resurrection that nobody ain't seen before. It seems like it's a variation of the Christus Victor motif, but it's something very different. And if you take what he's saying to its logical conclusion regarding love wins, then you have no choice but to conclude that God would be evil and unloving to send anybody to hell. But here's the deal. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. You could say that Jesus Christ is love incarnate. But Jesus himself made it very clear, very, very, very clear in his own teaching that not everybody was saved. And he didn't see that to be inconsistent with love or for his forgiveness at all. Instead, he likens it to being foolish. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew chapter 25. Let me read to you a couple of things that Jesus said regarding the end. Here's what it says. Chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers to buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I I say to you, I, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Was Jesus a universalist? No. Did Jesus die for the sins of the world? Yes. Those who die without oil, he says, are foolish. And by the way, understanding this parable is not hard at all. Talks about falling asleep and rising. That's death and resurrection. This is a parable that tells us about the judgment, the last day. Wisdom and foolishness are not foreign categories to the Scripture. The Proverbs say, The fool says in his heart there is no God. And it also says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These are the categories that Jesus is operating within here. Those who reject the message of salvation, who persist in their sin, refuse to believe in God, refuse to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ, it's not that God doesn't love them. It's that they're fools. Those who fear, love, and trust God, who've repented of their sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, Jesus says, they're wise. The fault doesn't lie with God or his love when it comes to the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment. The fault lies with rebel humanity who has sinned against God and wants to persist in darkness. The Apostle John, in writing about Jesus, he said this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, not everybody, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. John continues this interplay between light and darkness in chapter 3. In Jesus' conversation that he had with the Pharisee named Nicodemus, here's what Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light, the light has come into the world. But the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
Scripture could not be clearer. Hell is only for foolish people who loved wickedness and darkness. People who go there, go there not because there's a flaw in God's love or character. They go there because they loved their wicked deeds and refused to come into the light. And that they hate the light because they love the darkness. But where Rob Bell has gone in his little sermon here, if you take it to his logical conclusion, apparently something's changed in the universe now. And if God were if Christ were to return and send people to hell, it would be contrary to this idea, this new working of the universe that he's discovered that no one else has discovered. This new working that says, well, love wins. Let's continue. See, if the cross is just about getting you out of hell into heaven, then we've missed the cosmic significance of it. The cross is God's way of pushing the way that the universe works into an entirely new realm. Jesus overcomes death, so now the universe functions in a different way. It's not like it used to be because good defeated evil in one decisive moment in which somebody actually lived a loving life and never gave in once. Never once gave the finger in traffic. Once. And you're thinking, well, I've never done that. Pride. (laughs) No one once ever gave in to any of that. And then conquers death. So there's somebody who can say, death, not a problem for me. The universe now works. If you miss this, you miss, it's not just a person getting freed from their sin so they can cut. It's about a way that we fundamentally believe the universe works. And if you're a Christian, then... And where does the Bible say that the universe fundamentally works different now? Because the scripture doesn't say this. Apparently, even Peter, James, John, and Paul, um, and Jude, and Luke, and everybody else who participated in writing the New Testament, they all miss this too. And you have to take it all the way and acknowledge that has evil been overcome, yes or no? And if you are a Christian and you take the scripture seriously, then you have to come to the conclusion that the universe now works in a different way. And that at a point in time, evil was crushed and now we're dealing with kind of a skirmish. But the real battle has been decisively won. I have overcome the world. The universe now functions according to a different set of laws. So when somebody says, so-and-so got me and I will wait and I will get revenge... I will get even with them. They are demonstrating that they are living according to the way the universe used to work. But the universe now functions a different way. Because he just says, I've overcome it. This is what other writers picked up on this. Next slide. Said things like this. Later they started to realize what the implications of this were. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. They understood that every day we're faced with these Endless choices of how we're going to respond to the world. Are we going to overcome the world with more evil? So somebody does something to me and then I'm going to respond with something that's evil, but it's more creative evil or it's more clever evil or it's just better form of evil. 
or will I respond with good? And this determines, this is determined by how you view that the way the universe works. Because if you still view that we're in evil against evil, then you'll continue to, I'll get revenge. I'll cut the, I'll pull ahead of them, then I'll pull into their lane and slow down. Yeah, that'll show them. They'll just pull over by the side of the road and weep in repentance. So the spouse, husband or wife, says something and it's just grinding inside of you because they brought up something from the past and they made this little teeny dig, but you were on your way out the door so you couldn't respond. So then you come home and you think, will I bring up his ex-girlfriend or his ex-employer? Hmm, which will I bring? Hmm. Hmm, because I can do that. I can play that. And so now this little thing he brought up in me that's painful, uh, I can just bring out his little thing because he has my buttons, but I know his. And so it's this, and how will I respond? Well, if the universe works the way it used to, well, then I've got to push his buttons, but push one more button because I have to win this confrontation. I have to make him hurt a tad bit more. I have to make her hurt a tad bit more. I have to make that person feel a little bit more left out because then I win. But if the universe now works a different way, then Jesus has overcome it. And the only way that the universe works is that good just keeps winning and keeps crushing. Now, now let's... Okay, now listen. Take this to its logical conclusion and apply it to the doctrine of hell. His view here, his incorrect interpretation, his eisegesis regarding the fact that the universe now works differently, when you apply this to the doctrine of hell, you have no choice but to come to the conclusion, and it's a false conclusion because the texts say differently, that God sending somebody to hell is contrary to the new way that the universe works. There's so much wrong here, it's not even funny, but that's the only conclusion you can come to. And the problem is is that Rob Bell is speculating. Rob Bell has created his own theology here, and he's only he's really kind of just taken a few select passages and read his interpretation out of it, without any eye toward what the rest of the text says or what the apostles tell us is the correct way to understand both what Jesus did on the cross and what we are to expect when he returns. Let's take this deeper. Next. The writers later began to understand that this had ramifications even beyond the way the universe works. Having disarmed the powers and authorities... Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, public spectacle is a fascinating turn of phrase here, because he's left naked in public to die, which would be in his day, Romans 1, Jesus 0. Are, Are we tracking on that? It's a public victory by those who want him dead. But if you can do the worst possible thing to somebody, strip them naked, mock them, and murder them in public, if you can do the worst possible thing to somebody, and they still live, then who wins? You you killed me. That's the worst you can do to somebody. But as far as I know, I'm cooking fish. Okay, okay, that's why the public thing is so huge and significant. Is it saying you can do anything to this Jesus and he still overcomes it? 
the worst evil can do, and we'll spend a few, uh, next week, a couple weeks from now, we'll spend a whole day on this because this, the ramifications of this are, are mind-blowing. But if you can do the worst possible public thing to somebody and they still live, then it becomes, then it goes from a public defeat to a public victory, which is why they speak of Jesus in terms of victory, triumphing. Next, next slide. Let's put it this way. The powers that appear to be winning lose, and the person who appears to be losing wins. And if the universe works in a different way than it used to because of the cross, then this is true today even more than it was them, because it has a whole history of truth behind it. The powers that put Jesus on the cross, that mock him, strip him naked, divide up his clothing, spit on him, slap him, beat him on the head with a stick, pierce his sides with spikes, those powers at that moment appear like they're winning and like they have the power. Would you agree? They appear like they're winning. But in the end they lose because the worst that they can do, he just rises from the dead. So the powers that appear as though they're winning, lose. And the power, the person who appears naked and bloody as if he's losing, actually wins. So you're at the water cooler, and you're being mocked because you're a person of faith. And everybody's getting their little jab in, and you're apparently losing according to the office scorecard, because you're the freak Christian. And so it appears as though you lose and they win. But hopefully everybody wins. But, but, but the essence of the cross is that the person who appears as though they... Did you hear that? Hopefully everybody wins. See, it's already in prototype form here. They may be losing, walks with God, and God takes care of them, no matter what the circumstances look like at the moment. If this is the case, next slide, then the cross is God's way of saying love wins. It, it, the cross is God's way of saying, listen, listen. So did you hear that? This was all a philosophical, logical syllogism. And it, he jumps the track when he says that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he sees it that there's a whole new way in which the universe operates. And then he begins to draw extrapolations from that, extra, that extrapolation, where there's no text that say that. And then at the conclusion then, he says, so therefore, if this is true, then the cross is God's way of saying love wins. But there, none of the apostles say that. The scripture doesn't say that. The cross is a real and not philosophical way in which God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Or as the prophet Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. We can talk about it in that way. But the conclusion that he comes to is a weak conclusion. 
So the cross is just one one big way in which God says, love wins. Hmm. Notice what's missing. The wrath of God, propitiation, a true biblical explanation of the forgiveness of sins, and the foolishness of those who persist in their wickedness and unbelief and love the darkness rather than the light. I know know what they did to you. Love wins. I know what they're saying about you, but, and you have these choices, because we have choices. The cross is God's way of saying, listen, whatever it is, I know they abuse you. I know they sexually molested you. I know. I saw it. I was there. I was weeping with you. And so you... How about he was dying on the cross for that? Hmm. You have these choices now that you've dug it up, and we're 20 years down the road, and you can respond in one of many ways, but let me tell you, Love wins. The cross is God's way of saying the only thing that will ultimately win. It doesn't mean that we condone. It doesn't mean that we say, hey, it was no big deal. It doesn't mean that we brush over it. But it means that ultimately love wins. Love wins. So that when you're in traffic, love wins. Love wins. Not, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. When you're walking down the hall at school and you're coming to the collection of lockers and you know who's going to be standing here and you know what they're going to say about you and you know they're going to talk about the way you dress and they know love wins. No matter what is done to us, love wins. Do you believe that? Because if the cross is real and it happened, then the universe works in a different way. And if the universe now functions according to different laws, then love wins. It wins on the cross, and so it wins tomorrow, and it wins wins at the next family reunion. Are we preaching yet? Okay, it wins tomorrow with the person four cubicles over who is a contestant for most annoying employee in the world. Love wins. It wins. And you have choices about how you're going to respond. Next slide. Like one writer, 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 social or foreign language, I don't know. And then I'll come back to English. First, like writer, writer just said, love never fails. Ever, 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 ever. Love never fails. Uh-uh, it doesn't. It can't. It's incapable of failing. Which I think raises a, a new thing. Next slide. Love always wins. It's like a new law. It's a new law in the universe. You like that one? It only took six months to come up with. It always wins. No, 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 no. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. But you don't understand my brother-in-law. Yeah, we do. We do. We do. Okay? And, and love still wins with him. Correct? Would you agree? Correct? Well, you don't understand my 16-year-old kid. My, okay, we don't. Yeah, you're right. We don't. <laughs> but love wins. But you don't understand my, my neighbor. My neighbor is of a different orientation. Love wins with your neighbor, too. Would you agree? What about them repenting of their homosexual sin and being forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. Is that how love wins? 
in the life of a homosexual, according to Rob Bell? Doesn't sound like it. Love wins. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I need reminders of this a lot. Anybody else here? I need, like, I need, I need a tattoos of this. I need it on the, I need this in my home. I need this. I don't necessarily need it on the bumper of my car. I need it on the bumper of the car ahead of me. <laughs> Correct? I don't necessarily need it in my desk as much as I need it when I'm in somebody else's work area and I'm interacting. Or maybe they come. I need it on the forehead of every person that I meet because this would help me because I need to be reminded on a regular basis because otherwise I fall into patterns that aren't love winning. Would you agree? Would you agree? Anybody, is anybody else? So I started thinking about how I'm always making fun of um, Christian bumper stickers. So I decided to design my own bumper sticker and I had 10,000 of them made. And I took them out of the box they came in so that you could each get one. (laughs) Somebody told me, hey, be careful, the box doesn't hold together. Anyway, what I'd like to see everywhere I go in Grand Rapids is love wins. Okay, I want to see it on foreheads. And this is a completely different message than Jesus told to proclaim. In Luke 24, Jesus said, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Simply saying love wins with the understanding that somehow the cross means that there's a new law in the universe and that the universe works differently when there's no passage of Scripture that even says that is a problem because it fundamentally changes the message of the cross and the call of the gospel given to Christians to proclaim, by Jesus nonetheless. I want to see it on limbs. I want to see it on... I want to see it on the car in front of me and the car in front of that car. I want to see it in all sorts of interesting places because to me this is one of the central meanings of the cross is the cross is God's way of saying love wins and you're going to get slapped and you're going to get beaten and you're going to get mocked and you're going to get spit on and you're going to be betrayed and you're going to have friends who put the knife in your back and you're going to get criticized and you're going to have people who keep falling asleep on you even people that you really love aren't going to be there for you at key times and it's in those moments when you need this would you agree? Because it happens, and Jesus had choices. Um, So, I would say week number one at the cross, the cross is God's way of saying love wins. I think we need to speak this to each other. We need to speak it a lot. We need to call our friends and just say, hey, 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 love wins. Okay? Okay? It's like spiritual prank calling, so it's okay. You know what I mean? I think some of us, when we go into situations, we need to just, we know, okay, this situation, so-and-so is going to be there, and it's going to pull up all this stuff, and it's going to make me into this kind of person that I don't want to become. Do you ever find yourself in situations, and you just want to stand up and immediately begin flogging yourself because you think, I become this other person when I'm in fill in the blank. Anybody? Like, who is, who takes possession of this body for these brief moments with this particular person? That would be your sinful nature. 
and you just think we need an exorcism or something. Because this is not me, but I get in certain things and I need to be reminded before those kinds of situations that love wins. And the cross is God's way of saying to us in all of our brokenness and in, in all of our tendency to respond to all these different ways, hey, uh, um, Jesus went through everything and more and responded in love. It's been done. Somebody did it. They actually responded in love the whole way through. And they did it, and now they sent their spirit to live inside of you so that you can do it. Um, let's power. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you hear that last part? Yeah. The, hang on a second. That's law. That's not gospel. Hang on a second. Here we go. Hey, uh, um, Jesus went through everything and more and responded in love. It's been done. Somebody did it. They actually responded in love the whole way through. And they did it, and now they sent their spirit to live inside of you so that you can do it. Um, let's bow our heads, shall we? Yeah, I mean, even at this early date in uh, Rob Bell's preaching, you already begin to see him drifting towards this false gospel that he's proclaiming. You take the, these speculations of his to their logical conclusions, you cannot help but come to the conclusion then that for God to punish somebody eternally is inconsistent with the message of love wins. But the problem is not with God. The problem is, is with Rob Bell's speculations. The Bible tells us clearly where the problem lies. It lies in men's wickedness, in their false belief, in their unbelief. There's no fault in God's love. It's that men love darkness instead of the light. And so the problem is, is when you take this to its logical conclusion, I mean, you have to come to the conclusion that it would be unjust and unloving and contrary to the new way in which the universe works for Christ to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. So then the question comes up, who are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Rob Bell, who is not from heaven? whom God did not send to correct the false teachings of Jesus Christ? Or are you going to believe Jesus Christ? Because Jesus himself spoke very clearly, very, very clearly regarding the end. Here's what he said, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger. And you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe me and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he, the king, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, 
into the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, and I was naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Notice it doesn't say anything about them saying, but that's inconsistent with the new way in which the world, the universe works. Isn't love supposed to win? And Jesus ends this story by saying, and these, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If there was one human being who understands and understood what true love is, then it's Jesus Christ. And you cannot say about the one who demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for our sins to propitiate the wrath of God. You cannot say of Jesus that he does not understand love. He does. And yet, Love incarnate. Jesus, who loved us so much that he died on the cross for all of our wicked rebellion against him, and calls us all to repent and be forgiven. That same forgiveness that Rob Bell so accurately pointed out, that Jesus was giving to the thief who was next to him on the cross and praying for for those who were murdering him. That same forgiveness is extended to you and to me right now this day. And Jesus Christ calls us to repent of our wickedness, to repent of our rebellion, to repent of our false belief, and to be forgiven by his shed blood on the cross. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's mercy. But there is a day coming when Jesus will say, that's it. This day has come to a close. It's time to open the books, to call the nations forward, and to judge the world, to end heaven and earth, and to create a new heavens and a new earth. That day is coming. And on that day, he will say to those who persisted in sin and unbelief, who loved wickedness and the darkness rather than the light, he will say to them, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. That is not inconsistent with love. That is consistent with the very character of God who is both loving and just, and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Repent and be forgiven. Rob's, Rob Bell's gospel isn't the biblical gospel. It's not the authentic gospel preached by Christ nor the apostles. And it incorrectly looks at Christ's cross and draws conclusions from it that cannot be supported from what God has revealed in his word. And those who believe his false gospel and believe that it's contrary to love and contrary to the slogan, love wins, for God to send people to eternal punishment, do not know God 
and do not understand the real Jesus Christ. They might believe in a Jesus, but it's not the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Repent and be forgiven. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You know the drill. We truly can use your help. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to email me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross to propitiate the wrath of God for you, a poor miserable sinner. Amen. Amen.